Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Staff Sergeant Eric Shaw. Shaw was a squad leader serving with Charlie Company, part of the 2nd Battalion, 327th Infantry Regiment, that's a part of the 1st Brigade Combat Team out of the 101st Airborne Division, the No Slack Brigade. The time period we're going to talk about here is in June of 2010 in Kunar Province, Afghanistan. Now, to step back a little bit and talk about Afghanistan at a high level, I think this will help set the stage for Shaw's story. You know, we, we put troops on the ground. We put forces on the ground, I think maybe is a better way to say it. Very shortly after the 9-11 attacks, there were CIA personnel um, joined shortly thereafter by special forces soldiers. And then we just, it just kind of blew up more and more entered over a period of time. But looking at the initial phase of the war in Afghanistan, it was a resounding success. And I think it's still hard to break that out today by itself, but at some point down the road in the history books, we're going to be able to simply look at you know, call it the first five or six weeks, maybe, maybe even a little bit less, where it was just textbook, textbook work in terms of working with local forces, um, the, the, the value of bringing money in and, and buying alliances at times and, and utilizing air power to supplement forces on the ground. In very short order, the Taliban military capabilities were devastating with, you know, dozens of Americans on the ground. I mean, it was crazy how fast that happened. In turn, well, one of the things that happened right there, right there out the gate was we partnered with a group called the Northern Alliance. So the Taliban was formed in the Southern part of Afghanistan, um, based mostly with Pashtus, an ethnic group in the Southern part of the country. And then there was the Northern Alliance, um, Uzbeks, Tajiks that, that are in and around Kabul area and north forming the Northern Alliance. And we partnered with the Northern Alliance to push out the Taliban. And I think in turn, because we saw this group that we were a part of, that we were helping to fund, um, maybe we didn't recognize the severity of the insurgency that would ensue, right? So if we... It's, it's so easy to look at Iraq and Afghanistan side by side and, and pick things apart, but they're so, so different. You know, in Iraq, we toppled a government. We, we destroyed infrastructure there. Maybe the infrastructure was corrupt. Maybe the infrastructure was, was horrible and evil at, you know, parts of that, but there was still infrastructure and we removed all of that. And then it, it should have been understood. And, and in Iraq, we did expect an insurgency. There were different people uh, making different claims and projections, but I don't think I've seen anything where there wasn't at least some some frustrated ex-Saddam loyalists that would try to start something. So we at least knew something was coming in Iraq. I don't know how seriously we consider that in Afghanistan because this was more like helping to, it's a little bit closer to helping one side win a civil war. That's kind of what was happening. It was more of a civil war of sorts ongoing for a long period of time. The country's been at war for Ever. But it's not crazy to look at that and say, well, if we help one side win the Civil War and kind of help them to establish legitimacy and, and build their capabilities, 
there, there might not be a strong case for an insurgency, but as would be very similar to what we saw in Vietnam, we would start with the minimum force requirement, which I think is the right move, right? No reason to overspend over risk. Um, if you don't have to, we're talking about very, very valuable things like lives. We tried the minimum force requirement with just a handful of, of conventional troops on the ground. Um, and then a lot of special operations forces. And over time, as we started to see a little bit more of this insurgency take hold, we started to put more and more troops on the ground to help deal with that. Now, one of the ways that I've that I, I kind of consider in my mind the way that I view the insurgency in Afghanistan is it's generally speaking, Taliban. Throughout the course of the war, we've used a lot of different terms. Um, some because I think there is just a broad range of groups. For a while, we might call them anti-Afghan forces, AAF. Um, many times, the anti-Afghan forces were Afghans themselves. So there's a little bit of propaganda thrown in there. Um, but the idea was they are anti, um, you know, a free and democratic Afghanistan. So they're anti-Afghan forces. Um Taliban is is a very broad, we've used that broadly, and it doesn't necessarily encompass all forces, all groups that are fighting the Americans or even fighting um, other Afghans in the country. Remember, the Islamic State actually has, the Islamic State in the Khorasan has a, a decent uh, foothold or had a decent foothold for a while there in the eastern part of the country. So there's a lot of groups there. But generally speaking, if we talk about a Taliban insurgency in Afghanistan, you're going to be pretty spot on. That is kind of the major player in terms of the future, exclusively the future of Afghanistan. There are other groups there that are a little more international. You know, Islamic State, the Khorasan is a great example. They're not so focused on Afghanistan per se. They've got a little more global um, goals in mind. Then there's some kind of regional groups and some local groups. You know, there's for a long time, we kind of played some of this stuff off as warlords. It's just an old warlord trying to uh, secure his territory. But to, to bring it around full circle, generally speaking, if we throw the term Taliban out there, when we're talking about insurgencies in Afghanistan, you're going to be pretty accurate. Now, over time, we put more and more conventional troops on the ground. And I think the reason for that at a high level is, is, you know, the thought of, if, if you remember cartoons, when there's a leak in, in a pool or in a, in a wall, I, I have a dam in mind. I don't know if that's actually what they, what they use at times, but the cartoon character would go up and they put their hole or their, their finger in the hole, right? Their thumb in the hole. And then another one would, another leak would, would spring. So then they'd put their index finger. And next thing you know, they've got all 10 fingers and all 10 toes plugging different holes across the dam. And then of course, what happens? One more hole pops open and the whole dam falls down. That, that is how the insurgency has been operating in Afghanistan. The enemy, the Taliban, again, to use the term broadly, are very, very smart. This isn't a game. They're fighting for their lives. They're fighting for a belief system. And that belief system is not that they woke up today and said, well, I guess I'll, you know, I'll do this today. They are living, breathing, and ready to die for that cause for that belief. So in turn, when we put 5,000 troops in Paktika, they're not going to stay right there. They're going to move to another area 
that's not as heavily controlled or as heavily patrolled by American or coalition forces. This is a long game for the Taliban. They don't have to own all of the territory, all of the ground, but they know that we can't. Afghanistan's pretty big and, you know, it's pretty big in the sense that you have to just about be on top of a village to call it secure. And the Taliban know that because they grew up there. They live there. It's still home for them. So when we move into village A, they're just going to go to village B. If we then take village B, they're going to move to village C and so on and so on and so on. And one of the reasons for this is that there's a difference in societal norm, maybe is the way to say it. Here in the United States, I don't have to have a police officer on the corner of our street 24-7 or even once a week because I know that all I have to do is call and the police officer will be here in what, five, 10 20 minutes? How about 30 minutes? Let's say I can get a police officer here in 30 minutes. I think that's pretty slow response time depending on what I need them for. But nonetheless, I know that I have that capability. So I don't need to see the police don't have to put up a station right across the street from me. That doesn't carry in Afghanistan. That's not been a model that the Afghans have grown up with, especially when I should clarify especially when we're talking about some of these rural areas that aren't as well tied in with places like Kabul. Now, the the infrastructure and and kind of what I'm talking about is a little bit different in the cities, Herat, Kabul, Mazar Sharif, Kandahar. You're going to see, you know, much closer to what I'm talking about here with calling police. But when you're out in villages, like a small village we're going to talk about today called Daradam in, in Kunar province, there's not a thought of, let me just call the police. You're going to look to, if you have an issue, you're going to look to the nearest person who can resolve that issue. And in many cases, this is going back generations and generations, there's going to be somebody, a warlord, a, a, a tribal leader, a, a strong man, anything that has the control to you know, resolve disputes in that area or maybe help somebody get medical aid or, or, or any number of things, right? And if the United States or the Afghan forces aren't there on site, then the locals are going to look elsewhere. So we have to have people there or it becomes very, very easy for the Taliban to step in and say, hey, good news. We're here now. We will serve in that capacity. So you tend to see a flooding of American troops all across the country. But as soon as we but we can't be everywhere because it's even these small villages that if we're not there, then the Taliban can potentially have a presence. It, I understand what I'm saying sounds like there might not be a solution to the insurgency in Afghanistan, and I don't have one. So that might be what I'm saying here. It's, I don't know that there is a number of troops we could get to on the ground to resolve this. I mean, the image I have in my head is literally an American soldier on every corner. And we're not going to do that. We're not going to stand. We're not, you know, the country wouldn't support that. I don't think that's probably a good use of our military. So I don't know. But nonetheless, you end up with a couple issues. You have to transition this over to the Afghans because we just aren't going to be able to put the volume of Americans in uniform in these villages all across the country. There has to be an Afghan solution selfishly so we can get out of there. So people like Staff Sergeant Shaw and his men are not at risk anymore. They're coming home, maybe looking towards the next conflict, but they're not continually going back into these areas. You know, Again, they left Village A to secure Village B. Now Village A is under Taliban control. So they go back and they go back. It's a lot like, a lot like Vietnam, classic counterinsurgency issues. So we have to train the Afghans 
to be able to do this themselves and make sure that they're up to the task. But the volume of Afghan army and police that we need is staggering. And the army special forces and a lot, there's some, some specialized units within the military that are designed for this to go into a country and to train and equip and mentor foreign militaries. You know, take everything else out of the equation. At the very least, there is a substantial language barrier, right? So we have units that are specially trained to do that. Units like the the 1st Brigade Combat Team at 101st Airborne Division are not specially trained for that. These are warfighters. Now, if you asked Sean, his men, to teach basic battle, you know, basic combat tactics to the Afghans, that's not that hard. You know, that just teaching them just how to fight, not that hard. But of course, there's so many other things. And then you dive into the, the complexities of counterinsurgency warfare, and you're asking a lot. You're asking a lot of infantrymen, of artillerymen, of Marines to be able to train, mentor, and work alongside effectively a foreign military with, you know, realistically, very, very little training in how to do so. It's pretty on the job every single time. Now, we have this kind of, all of these things coming together where we're having to train the Afghan forces to take the lead, so we're not going to be there forever. You've got the Taliban moving from village to village as needed, because why stay in an area where the American presence is heavy? So then you end up with operations that like what we're going to see here in something called Operation Strong Eagle that kicks off in June of 2007 with the 2nd Battalion, 327th Infantry. And they're going into this area um, in Kunar known as the Gaki, Gakai Valley. I think I've seen it pronounced a couple different ways. A, a, a desolate valley that hasn't had a strong coalition presence. And, and Sean and his men are going to be tasked with clearing this village called Daradam. That is, I mean, when we're talking enemy fighters in the area, we're in the hundreds. The estimates are in the hundreds. So sizable enemy force, but it brings up the question, what the heck is going on? It's 2010 and U.S. forces are still are clearing villages. But it comes back to that issue of as soon as we move away, the Taliban come back. It's that that plug in the hole in the wall, right? As soon as you move your hand, the the, the water starts pouring through. The Taliban start pouring back in. So you have these issues where we have to go retake. We can't leave it. Now we have to go retake it and hopefully have enough troops on the ground to be able to hold it for a period of time. And at this point in 2010, hopefully those troops on the ground can be Afghans, Afghan police and Afghan army. So in the morning of June 27, 2010, Operation Strong Eagle kicks off. Now to get into this area in, in the Gaki Valley, Gakai Valley, it's a very narrow road and it's just ambush alley. Right, if you are an enemy defender wanting to ambush um, a convoy, it's just a great place to do it. There's a lot of places to hide. The road can twist and turn at times. It's very narrow. And think about this: what happens if one vehicle gets disabled? How do you get it out of there? We generally don't like um, leaving our vehicles on the battlefield and burning them or blowing them up. So, if you have a road that is one lane wide, and by one lane I don't mean like it's going through farmland, and on the side is grass or trees. I mean, like on one side is a mountain and on the other side might be a 20, 30, 40 foot drop off into a riverbed. Um, so you can't go around. If that vehicle becomes disabled, hits an IED that are everywhere, is struck by an RPG, which are 
everywhere um, or, or any number of other things, it puts the entire convoy at risk because now you have a vehicle that's disabled up front. So the enemy that's firing on this element knows that you can't go forward because they've disabled that lead vehicle. Not that hard a task to do. Imagine if they disabled a rear vehicle. Now everybody's stuck in between is stuck in this kill zone. That was a pretty common tactic, well, throughout warfare, but it was something the Mujahideen did heavily during the Soviet-Afghan war, and they did it heavily in this valley. So fortunately, the United States is able to look back on history and see how some of these events played out and decided, well, we're going to, look, we still have to get into that valley. We're going to do it a little bit differently. Now, a little bit differently meant a few things. It meant for starters, we were going to air assault troops all across ridgelines in and around the valley. And doing so, pretty intense firefights would rage for a period of time. But then in terms of getting people on the ground into this village of Dardam, I said, well, how about we still want the trucks? We still want the armored support, armored vehicle support, not armor. It's going to be up armored vehicles, but not tanks and Bradleys. We'll put those vehicles on the road, but out front ahead, let's put our troops on the ground, which isn't crazy. You know, they're more exposed, but they're also more likely to spot an ambush. They're more likely to detect IEDs in the road on the ground than being tucked back up in an up-armored Humvee or, or MAT-V or, or MRAC, whatever it might be. So having troops on the ground ahead of you can kind of help to disrupt the enemy's flow when they're expecting vehicles, right? Sean and his men are in that dismounted element as they exit Fob Joyce, forward operating base Joyce in Kunar, and start heading towards the village of Dardam on the morning of June 27th. It doesn't take long um, before they... they start their approach to the village and the Taliban open fire. And in the initial volley, um, it's there's RPGs in the initial vo- uh, initial volley, so rocket-propelled grenades. And if I read correctly, um, there was one Afghan soldier who lost one or both legs right away. So you're seeing not just, this is not harassing fire, which is a common tactic across Afghanistan. This is um, deadly accurate fire. And if you're claiming casualties in the opening volley, it's, pretty effective. So immediately, um, you know, everybody starts to take action and they're treating casualties. And remember, Sean and his men, along with approximately, I want to say it was 60 Afghan soldiers that they're working with and training and mentoring and fighting alongside are out ahead of the vehicles. Now they're not within sight of the vehicles because of some turns and a few changes in the train, but they're not, they're not that far away. They're close enough that it makes sense to move back to the vehicle's location for cover. Remember, they're kind of exposed on this road. We talked about this road kind of being ambush alley. So the vehicles are within reach that Shaw turns to his men and says, go. Go use those vehicles for cover. Get, get some sort of protection from the incoming rounds. He takes off and moves forward to his Afghan partners that are that are just ahead of him a little ways. And remember, this is where part of the challenge comes in with the language barrier and does all he can to tell them, we're moving back to the vehicles. Come with us. Let's go. Let's take some cover. You guys are stuck out here exposed. But remember, in the midst of a firefight, that's not a calm, collected conversation. It's chaotic. It's loud. It's disorienting. Shaw gets some of the men tells the leaders that tell the Afghan leaders what they're going to do. 
He moves back to the protection of the vehicles, thinking that all of these Afghans are coming with him. By the time he gets back to the vehicles in a covered position, safe, unharmed, good to go with his guys, he looks out. He looks out and sees that a, I've seen a couple numbers here. I've seen eight all the way up to platoon. So a, a, we'll call it a dozen or more Afghan soldiers haven't moved. And this is another issue that comes into play when we're talking about training foreign forces, when you don't have the ability, you know, when you don't, when you have that language barrier and listen, they don't have five years of training through things like JROT or JRTC and, and, you know, incredible us training mechanisms to get people ready for combat. Sometimes they end up in a firefight in Kunar Valley or in Kunar province and they got to figure it out on the fly. That's a dangerous classroom. And as Shaw looks out, what he sees is a group of Afghan soldiers that are confused, scared, completely within reason, but they're not moving. And you have to picture that this isn't like they're sitting out in an empty parking lot and on one corner of the parking lot is a bunker and people are saying, get the heck in the bunker. What are you doing standing out there? The road twists and turns and up and down and there's bullets coming from a lot of different directions and the Americans and the Afghans are shooting back. So in the middle of this, it takes some effort to get your bearings. It's, it's not very easy in the middle of a firefight to figure out what direction you're being shot at from, especially when it's a long ways off. It's not the easiest to figure out if the people behind you are shooting at the enemy or is that the enemy that somehow it's disorienting, especially in your first, second, third firefights when you're not used to it. That's kind of what it looks like happens with these Afghan soldiers that are stuck out by themselves, stranded. But the problem is they can't stay there because they're exposed. This is the area that is open to enemy fire. Now they're fine. The enemy is far enough away that they're not able to just start knocking these Afghan soldiers off one at a time, but it's not going to take long. Also, as so many of the friendly forces move to the cover behind vehicles, all of a sudden that group of Afghans sitting out in the open is going to become the prime target for every Taliban fighter on the hillside of a weapon. Why not shoot at the easy targets? So without missing a beat, once he sees this, Shaw gets up and takes off back into the kill zone that he just successfully exited with his men to rescue the remaining Afghan soldiers that are stuck out there in the open on the verge of being wiped out by Taliban fighters. It's during this act that at the age of 31, Staff Sergeant Eric Shaw was struck and killed by enemy fire in Kunar province, Afghanistan. For that act, risking his life, running back into just a wall of enemy fire in order to rescue the Afghan brothers, not, not his squad, not other folks from Charlie Company 2, 327 Infantry, not other Screaming Eagles, not even other Americans, but running through that hail of gunfire that, he buried, that, that realistically all these guys were lucky to survive the initial engagement. And he just went right back into it to save the lives of his Afghan brothers. For that, he'd be awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, the first, now that's the second highest award for valor in the United States Army. And that is the first award to a 101st Airborne soldier since the Vietnam War. So I believe it was awarded in 2013, but the date of action 
makes it the first sense to Vietnam War, which is a whole nother, that seems crazy to me um, that we've somehow, you know, at, at this point, nine years of conflict in Afghanistan, seven years of conflict in Iraq, it seems like maybe we just don't have our record straight. Because I find it hard to believe that nobody from the 101st has, uh, has, has done something worthy of, of, of that war throughout all of those other conflicts. But I'll tell you who most certainly is, is Staff Sergeant Eric Shaw. Um, again, running through fire to save his Afghan brothers, not Americans, not his squad mates, um, but his brothers in arms that he's fighting with in Kunar province, Afghanistan um, on June 27th, 2010. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.